The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. For those of you who were not here last Sunday, Pastor Samuel Boateng from Ghana, Africa, brought the word, preached here, preached a powerful message on the gospel, um, and it was an absolute blessing. Um, and Samuel thanked us that morning, but he also sent an email to me that I'm going to forward to all of you. He just wanted it more time in writing. Only thank you. He was incredibly encouraged. He was blessed. Um, and it was just an amazing highlight for him to come and visit our, our church. So that was Samuel. Um, blessed us with the word last week. So we will pick up now in the book of Acts. Two weeks ago, for those of you who weren't here, I did introduce the book of Acts and gave the background and all that information. So now we're ready to just start, start going through it. Uh, a paragraph at a time as, as God leads us. And I believe this is just going to be a wonderful thing for our church. Uh, going through how the early church uh, did church and what God did in their midst. And we will hopefully follow their model with God's leading and the Holy Spirit. We're going to learn many wonderful, blessed things together. So this is going to be uh, exciting to do that. Uh, as we talked a little bit about two weeks ago, the book of Acts is really Luke volume 2. So you take the Gospel of Luke, that was written by Luke, and intentionally Luke wrote Acts kind of as a sequel, so they do go together. And it's been called historically the Book of Acts, but as you read it, you see one of the dominant characters in the Book of Acts is actually the Holy Spirit of God. He's even in, introduced in chapter 1. He's, the Holy Spirit is in just about every chapter in the Book of Acts, and that's why many have said, rightfully so, that it's not the Book of Acts of the Apostles, it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit of God, which is really appropriate. And yes, it is the Holy Spirit of God working through His people, the Apostles, but it's a supernatural work, and it is energized and empowered by the Holy Spirit. So that's an appropriate title as well, either Luke Volume 2 or the Acts of the Holy Spirit or the Acts of the Apostles who were moved along by the Holy Spirit. Looking at the first eight verses, I titled the sermon today, Jesus Prepares for Takeoff. He is ready to launch in many different ways, really. He had been promising, I'm going back to heaven. I'm going back to heaven. I'm going back to heaven. They didn't want to hear that. But we're going to see that fulfilled in Acts chapter 1. So Jesus is doing his last minute divine preparations before he does literally take off back into heaven, ascended where he had been for all eternity with the Father. What else is going to take off? Jesus prepares for takeoff, not just his personal takeoff at the ascension. He is preparing the apostles for their takeoff. He's about to launch them. He prayerfully and sovereignly selected each one of the 12 apostles. Yes, even Judas, the betrayer. That was not a mistake. Amazingly, that was determined before the foundation of the world. Boggles the mind. Fulfilling God's purposes. So, uh, so Jesus prayerfully selects each one of these 12 apostles who would be foundational in beginning the Christian ministry, establishing the church. And Jesus spent three plus years training them, investing them, spending time with them, teaching them, encouraging them, rebuking them, modeling for them. And even if, after three plus years, they're ready to graduate, get their MDiv seminary diploma, and there are many things they still don't understand, they don't get, does not compute, along with this 
natural human fear that they've had, even up to this, even in Acts chapter 1. Yet they're supposed to lead the founding of the church. And so these are last minute preparations. Jesus is going to launch the apostles. And the apostles that we see in the book of Acts, beginning in chapter 1 and 2, seem like totally different people than the apostles that we saw in the four Gospels, even just weeks before, at the time of Christ's death and resurrection. And even just before that, they seemed so weak and so hard-headed and so, so, in so many ways, and yet there's this amazing uh, supernatural transformation that we're going to see in the lives of these apostles. That is due to the Lord Jesus Christ having properly prepared them for takeoff. Takeoff in their leadership. And then the last way that we're preparing for takeoff, Jesus is preparing for his own takeoff at the ascension, the takeoff for the ministry of the apostles, and then the takeoff for the church. He's about to launch the church, the entity of the church, uh, that which you and I today are a part of if you know Jesus Christ. And this is when it is launched. It takes off in the book of Acts, and Jesus is preparing that. He made a promise uh, just, again, maybe a month and a half before Acts chapter 1, where he told them explicitly, I will build my church. I will build. He wasn't saying that throughout the three years of his ministry. He wasn't even talking about the church. This was new information. At the end of his life, just before his death, then he mentions this thing called the church. I will build my church. Matthew 16, 18. And here we see in the book of Acts that promise is fulfilled. It is launched. So Jesus is going to take off. The apostles are going to take off. And the church itself is going to take off. And all the believers in the early church are going to take off. It is absolutely amazing. And they all take off. The church takes off supernaturally that two times in the book of Acts it says the believers turned the world upside down. It was dramatic. So this is going to be fun to see. So let's go ahead. Jesus prepares for takeoff and let's see his last minute preparations. Broke it up there into three points for you. And we'll look at the first one, verses 1 through 3, part of this preparation. And that's uh, the proof. The proof that Jesus gives. And the proof is the resurrection. Part of preparing the apostles to take off, to launch, uh, to boldly go in the name of Christ in the face of death, preaching the gospel under the new entity called the church, in light of their weaknesses, in light of their questions and ignorance, in light of their fear, in light of their humanity, in light of their sinfulness, and the fact that they were finite, they needed preparation, and part of that preparation that was absolutely essential was proof. Proof. When Jesus revealed in his last supper with them and the, the time they had together, the extended period of time, and he's telling them, I'm leaving, I'm leaving, I'm going to die, they panicked. They became fearful, overwhelmed, doubting. Even after Jesus Christ rose from the dead, it says the apostles doubted. They didn't believe the women who came and were eyewitnesses of his resurrection at the tomb. They still doubted at the testimony of the women. Then Jesus appears to ten of the apostles and they relay it to Thomas and Thomas wasn't there. And he doubts. Jesus is with them over the course of 40 days, appearing in a resurrected, glorified body, encouraging them, spending personal time with them. And Matthew 28 says, when he's about to go back at the ascension into heaven, it says, some still doubted. That's 
how we are as weak humans. So they needed proof, real proof, to encourage them to validate the word of God, that Jesus had spoken, that he is committed to fulfilling all of his promises, as he said he would, and he does. And so let's look at the proof, and actually the culmination of the proof is the historical resurrection. Is there proof for Christianity? Yes. Is, Trist is Christianity true only if you can prove it? No. But does Christianity have proof? Absolutely. And a corollary to that is, if there was no proof for Christianity, I would not believe it. And I'm a presuppositionalist. I believe God. I believe his word. I believe his truth by faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. Yet at the same time, if there was no proof, I wouldn't believe it. But there is proof. And there's the resurrection. And that's the greatest proof of all. So let's go ahead and look at it. And this is helps tremendously in their preparation. Uh, Luke writes the, in verse 1, the first account that I composed, Theophilus, which is the Gospel of Luke, 24 chapters, the longest book in the New Testament, recounting the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ from his birth into his resurrection. For whatever reason, Luke wrote this specifically to this fella about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Theophilus, remember that, the Gospel of Luke? where the Gospel of Luke was all about Jesus. He was born, and then he begins his ministry at age 30, and then he does three years of public ministry, then he dies, and then there's his resurrection. Let me pick up from that story. And so Luke is going to relay now the ascension Jesus is going to leave in Acts chapter 1, and that's why this phrase is very interesting, very important at the end of verse 1. Theophilus, uh, I'm going to recount to you all that Jesus began to do and teach. So Jesus began to do a work. What do you mean began to do and teach? Uh, did Jesus finish all of his work before he ascended into heaven? Did Jesus complete all that he came to do by the time the ascension happened when he went back into heaven? Well, the answer is actually yes and no. There's his saving work on the cross, the atonement, by virtue of willingly dying for sinners on the cross, absorbing wrath of God the Father on behalf of sinners in accordance and fulfillment with Scripture, being buried, rising again from the dead, spending the last three and a half years teaching, preparing his disciples, his work on the cross. He rose again from the dead. He's going to ascend into heaven. Making the provision for forgiveness of sin for sinners was totally complete. As the high priest who had to do one work, and then when he went and ascended back into heaven, he sat down on the throne next to the Father as a high priest. His work was complete. His saving work was done. That's what that means when it says that he sat down as a high priest. Because Old Testament human priests, they never sat down when they were doing the work in the tabernacle or in the temple, ever. Because the work was never done. Sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice after week after month after year after year after year. The high priest never sat down. So a couple of times in the scriptures, when it refers to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ with his death and resurrection, his ascension, and going next to the Father and then sitting down, his work is complete. His atoning work fully provided for. No more work needs to be done. Humans can't work to get their sins forgiven because Jesus did it all. It's all about his work, not our work. That's why on the cross, Jesus said, hey, tell us die at the very end, just before he breathed his last. It is done. It is finished. It is complete. Nothing else needs to be done to earn the forgiveness 
for a holy God. I have done it all. The Father is satisfied. The Father is pleased. The Father crushed the Son in fullness with His full fury of wrath. God was appeased. He was propitiated. He was satisfied. He punished the Son. It is done. It is complete. I've done it all. Now, for us, it's just a matter of understanding what Jesus provided that sacrifice, believing it, appropriating it, and then we're adopted into the in the family of God, but it's not by works that we do. So did Jesus complete everything he needed to do prior to the ascension? Well, yes, in terms of his atoning sacrifice, his death, resurrection, ascension, and now reigning as high priest. But there is a component and element of his work that is not complete. And it says it right here. Of all that he began to do, he began to do and teach. Jesus did not complete everything that he was commissioned by the Father to do. And that's what we see in the book of Acts. So really the book of Acts is a carrying of the baton of the work began by Jesus Christ as he hands the baton off to the 12 apostles that he's invested in for three years so that they might continue the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's not the atoning sacrificial work for sin, but it's other kinds of work. For example, it is starting the church laying the foundation of the church, establishing the church, codifying doctrine in the New Testament. The apostles did that, building the church, evangelizing the world. And actually, that's been going on for 2,000 years. And that's one of the works that Jesus began to do. He came preaching and teaching, proclaiming the gospel, repent and believe the gospel uh, and the kingdom is at hand. That is a work that continues by the apostles that's actually been handed over to us and we will hand it over to the next generation of Christians until Christ comes again. So that is one work that just continues that the church carries on on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. We represent the Lord Jesus Christ with respect to his work on the the earth today because the Lord Jesus is in heaven. So that's that important phrase, things Jesus began to do and to teach. We perpetuate his teaching. As a matter of fact, Jesus didn't say everything that was going to be said with respect to divine revelation by the time he died and ascended into heaven. There was new revelation that God gave the apostles that Jesus never talked about that we actually have in our Bible. And much of that was given to the apostle Paul called these mysteries, more teaching, more teaching. Jesus didn't mention this in the Gospels. So his work continues. His work goes on. Jesus does his work through his apostles. And the Apostle Paul gives all this information and many of these mysteries that these other apostles, Peter, they never heard. Wow, we never heard Jesus talking about this. Paul, where'd you get this stuff? This is hard to understand, he says in 2 Peter chapter 3. So the work of Jesus Christ continues through the church. Actually, this is a great answer to the question which so many people are trying to figure out or answer or write on and even coming up with very imaginative, clever, innovative, new, quite unbiblical answers. And that is... What is the mission of the church today? What is the mission of the church today? And two weeks ago, I read you some of the answers that people were coming up with that have nothing to do with the Bible. Well, the main answer to the question, what is the mission of the church? The church is to be about continuing the work of Jesus Christ that he began to do and teach. That's what the church should be doing. Not making the environment green, and recycling, and on and on it goes. It's We continue the work that Jesus began to do and teach. And that is modeled clearly in the book of Acts for us. So the mission 
words, the mission of the church hasn't changed. So Luke goes on. So Theophilus, uh, let me tell you some more about the work Jesus, you know, the ascension. That's not, that's not the end of the story, Theophilus. That's great news. Jesus, I mean, he rose from the dead, but now he's got to ascend, and the church has to be built and go on and reach the uttermost parts of the earth. Verse 2, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. That's the ascension, and that's where Acts chapter 1 begins, the ascension of the Lord Jesus. We'll see that coming up. After he had by the Holy Spirit. Okay, the Holy Spirit is introduced in verse 2. We're going to see the Holy Spirit, like I said, dozens and dozens of times, just about every chapter in the book of Acts. He is a main character in the book of Acts. After Jesus had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen, whom he had selected, whom he had elected by divine appointment. After praying to the Father, every single one of those men was the perfect choice for the role suited to them, including, as I said earlier, Judas, the betrayer. And they're going to fulfill the commission that God intended for them. Verse 3. So it's these apostles he's talking about right now. To these, to the apostles especially. This is also true of some of the disciples, but especially the 11, apostles, 11 remaining apostles, minus Judas. Paul was not included yet. To these 11 apostles, Jesus presented himself, present tense, alive after his suffering. So in other words, after Jesus got crucified, buried, he rose again from the dead. And he began to present himself alive. He began to appear to his apostles deliberately. Beginning the first day on Resurrection Sunday, he made a couple of appearances. So to the apostles, he presented himself alive after his suffering or crucifixion by many convincing proofs. He didn't just appear a couple of times. It was many. And with his appearing each time, it was convincing proofs. There's the word proof right there. Do we have proof for Christianity? Yes, we do. What is the proof? It's eyewitness proof. It is eyewitness testimony. That kind of proof is accepted in the courtroom in America today. Eyewitness testimony. The apostles were eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ and his ministry and his many resurrection appearances. And there were many, many convincing proofs. And as he appeared, he didn't just appear, he did amazing things convincing proofs. Uh, they're locked in a door, bolted behind the door, trying to hide from everybody, and poof, out of nowhere, Jesus appears in the room. That was a convincing proof. How did, how did you do that? That alarmed them. That scared them. That's why he said, peace, be not afraid. Because that was kind of scary. But that was an amazing, supernatural, convincing proof. And, and also proving to them that it was him by, by virtue of the conversation and picking up on things that he had been teaching about for three years. He continues to talk about those very same things. Oh, yeah, this is the Jesus we know. He continues to talk about the kingdom of God. He continues to talk uh, about who he is as Messiah. That was a convincing proof. And also, he's literally eating with them in the Gospel of John and other places. After they're in a resurrection body, sits down, has a meal, has fellowship, has it, but he's eating food. He's proving to them he's in a physical body. He is not a phantom. He is not a ghost. He is the glorified risen Jesus Christ in a body 
many convincing proofs. Not all of those times that he appeared and did these things is recorded in the Bible. The Bible is selective. It gives some examples. But there are many, countless. And the apostles saw that. And with each appearing, they are being encouraged. They are being strengthened. They are being empowered and prepared for their mission that would put them in the face of danger to the point of even dying for their faith. They needed this preparation, this proof, this convincing. I'll put my life on it. Peter goes from coward to the most courageous and in the end willing to die for Christ. And Jesus, it says, it goes on, appearing to them, present tense, he continues to appear to them, appearing to them, literally appearing throughout. Appearing to them over the course of 40 days. Rose again from the dead and over the course of 40 days. He just continues to appear to his apostles, to encourage them, to give them proof, to strengthen them, to prepare them. So that by the time the 40 days is over, 50 days is over, 40 days ascension and then 50 days to Pentecost, they are prepared. They are ready. And that's why we're going to see a totally different Peter and the apostles on the day of Pentecost. This was all part of their preparation. So is there evidence of the truth of Christianity? Absolutely. The skeptics try to tell us there isn't. Absolutely. There was eyewitness evidence. And they've left us, they've left us a written record that's absolutely authoritative. Many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days, speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? That is a very confusing question. That is a very complex question. I guarantee if I started individually talking to every one of you, uh, do you believe in the kingdom of God? Oh, yeah. And then I just start asking you questions. I could confuse you real quick. Really. Because the kingdom of God, that is very comprehensive, complex. There's some mystery to it. So if I were to ask you, and you're a Christian, so do uh, you believe in the kingdom of God? Yeah. Okay. Are you presently in the kingdom of God? Uh, yeah. Well, how do you get into the kingdom of God? Who knows what you would say. Jesus told Nicodemus, you've got to be born again to get into the kingdom of God in John chapter 3. So the kingdom of God that you're presently in, is that the same kingdom of God that was taught in the Old Testament? Well, uh, yeah, well I think so. Well, that's where it comes from. The kingdom of God was a dominant theme in the Old Testament mentioned hundreds of times. And most of the time in the Old Testament, when the kingdom of God was mentioned, it was very specific. It was usually to the nation of Israel. So are you a Jew? Are you an Israelite? Uh, no. Oh, okay. But all the Old Testament promises, for the most part, regarding the kingdom are to Israel, the nation of Israel and the Jews. But you're not Jewish. You're not an Israelite. How does that apply to you? And also, most of the promises regarding the kingdom in the Old Testament are promises of apparently things that would be literally fulfilled on earth. On earth. Just, I'm going to give you one example. I could give you a zillion. Uh, but look, if you have your Bible, look at Isaiah chapter 2. And you just go through the whole book of Isaiah. It talks about, it's an explication of the kingdom of God when the Messiah comes. So Isaiah chapter 2 the word of the Lord which came to Isaiah the son of Amos concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So this is about stuff that's going to happen in the future regarding Jerusalem, a literal city. Well, what's going to happen? Well, verse 2, in the last days. When's that? That is now. We are in the last days. This is a prophecy about the last days of what's going to happen in Jerusalem. Really? Okay. Well, what's going to happen? Well, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief 
of the mountains. Now, is that true today over there in Israel and by Jerusalem, that there's a mountain there that is designated as the most important place where all the activity uh, of, it's the hub of world activity right now in terms of uh, the Messiah ministering from there and God's people ministering there? No, it's not. That isn't happening. But it says in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord over there in Jerusalem, it's going to be established as the chief of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills. That hasn't happened. Verse 3, many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain that is in Jerusalem. Of Yahweh to the house of the God of Jacob. That's not happening. Happened in the last 2,000 years. That he may, that he may teach us. He? Who's that? That is the Messiah. Is the Messiah on earth in Jerusalem right now teaching his people the ways of the Lord in Jerusalem? No. He's in heaven. But this says it's going to happen in the last days, verse 4, and he, the Messiah, will judge between the nations on earth from Jerusalem. That's not happening. He will render decisions for many people. That's not happening. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. That's not happening. Never again will they learn war. That's not happening. Down to verse 12. And the Lord, Yahweh of hosts, will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is proud and lofty and against everyone who is lifted up. So at the time of the kingdom, according to the prophecy of Isaiah and many other prophecies in the Old Testament, the Jews were taught, the Jews were told that when Messiah comes, the kingdom will come to the earth, literally. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what the Old Testament taught. It is on the earth. Verse 12, for the Lord of hosts will have a day of reckoning against everyone who's proud and lofty. All of Israel's enemies will be judged. They will be thwarted. They will be stamped out. Verse 14, against all the lofty mountains, all the hills that are lifted up. Verse 18, all idols will be completely vanished. That's not true. That didn't even happen in the apostles' days. There was idolatry rampant everywhere. But this is a promise of the coming kingdom that would be established by the Messiah. So when Jesus comes along and finally convinces his 12 apostles before his death that he is indeed the Old Testament Messiah, they have this very specific vision in their mind. Wow, this is cool. Jesus is going to literally sit on David's throne in Jerusalem, overthrow Roman influence, the Roman government, Herod and his henchmen, the Sadducees and the Pharisees and their compromise, and Jesus is going to reign supreme, and we are going to be sitting with him on the earth. This is what they are thinking. This is the kingdom of God in their mind. And in many respects, rightfully so, because that's what the Old Testament taught. Uh, I mean, like I said, another passage in Isaiah that just keeps up with this theme. The kingdom would be on the earth when the Messiah comes. Uh, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, famous verse. For a child will be born. to. Well, when is this kingdom going to come? How's it going to happen? Who do we look for? What do we know? How do, how do we identify the Messiah? So it gets more specific. Chapter 9, verse 6. For a child, it's going to be a human baby, will be born to us. Born of a virgin. We're told in Isaiah 7, 14. A child will be born. A son will be given supernaturally by God. To us, to Israel. And the government will rest on his shoulders. There it is. The government, when they read that, they were thinking literally government. Jesus is going to be literally on earth in Jerusalem. The first time he came. That was their worldview. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, uh, 
eternal of the ages, prince of peace. Verse 7, and there will be no end of the increase of his government or of peace. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold. There it is. So I just go on and on. Chapter 11 of Isaiah and it just keeps going. So this is what the apostles are thinking. Oh, wow, this is awesome. Jesus has been risen from the dead. He's been appearing to us for over 40 days. I think we're going to get close. I think he's just thinking up a strategy and a plan and how we're going to charge in and we're going to overtake and we're going to get Herod. We're going to get him in a headlock and we're going to do whatever we have to do. And Judas, the zealot man, just whip out your sword. Do your thing, man. You've been trained. Who knows what they were thinking? But they were thinking literally of a takeover at that time on earth in fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures that Jesus would reign as Messiah King on earth from Jerusalem. And that's why Jesus had to spend 40 days. He keeps talking about things regarding the kingdom because they weren't getting it. And one of the things that's mysterious about the kingdom of God was he brought this up in Matthew 13. They're called the parables of the kingdom. And it's a series of parables. And he's trying to teach just one simple point with each parable about the kingdom because they didn't get it. And there's a word used there in the Gospels called the mysteries of the kingdom. In other words, Jesus is, you know what, guys? You've got the Old Testament understanding of the kingdom, which is cool. That's legit. That stuff's going to happen. But there's also a new component you don't get and you don't understand. And there's the spiritual component to it. And it's, that's why Jesus called the mysteries of the kingdom. This is new information I am giving to you as the apostles in Matthew 13 that the prophets didn't talk about in the Old Testament. And Jesus goes through all the parables of the kingdom, of the mysteries of the kingdom. And there's a common theme all throughout the teaching on the mysteries regarding the kingdom of God. And what is the common theme? That, well, there's some additional stuff and realities that are going to happen regarding the kingdom of God that were not taught in the Old Testament. And a lot of that has to do uh, with a time frame. There's a time frame that the prophets in the Old Testament were not aware of. We see that in Peter. It says, Peter said that the prophets, a lot of times, they didn't know the time, the timing of the fulfillment of the prophecies regarding the Messiah. And one main thing that is not taught in the Old Testament that the apostles never understood until they were enlightened was that there were two comings of the Messiah at least. The Old Testament teaches one. Or it seems like it teaches one. It really teaches two. They just didn't understand there would be a big gap of at least 2,000 years between the first coming of him as suffering servant and then him coming as reigning king. That's part of the mysteries in Matthew 13. They didn't get that. This, this time factor, that's why their, their question that's coming up regarding the kingdom has to do with the timing. Because they were totally wrong about the timing. So that's why Jesus had to keep teaching and keep, boy, we got to get this thing regarding the kingdom down. It is complex. There's mystery to it. And many Christians are confused today about what is the kingdom of God? When does it happen? Uh, oh, if I were to ask you, are you in the kingdom of God? Yes. You are? Yes. Are you experiencing the fullness of the kingdom of God? You might say, some people, Christians say, oh, yeah. We are in the millennium. We are in the kingdom right now. This is it. Present tense. Well, if that's true, I'm just going to read, listen carefully, Matthew 25, because there's a future component to the kingdom that isn't happening now, and it's not going to happen until the future, the end of the age. And Jesus makes it clear. Matthew 25, verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in glory, that's at the end of the age, and all the angels with him, then he will sit, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Meaning he's not sitting on this certain throne right now. He's going to sit on, you know what throne it is? It is on the earth. It's a throne on the earth, Revelation 5.10. 
Jesus then in the future, at his second coming, at the end of the age, will sit on this throne. It was called the throne of David, we saw in Isaiah 9-7. And all the nations at the time will be gathered before him. That hasn't happened yet. And he will separate them one from another, as the shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king, Lord Jesus, will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit, listen, inherit the kingdom. There it is. Receive the kingdom. This is a future act that hasn't happened yet. Am I in the kingdom right now? Yes. But is there elements to the kingdom I'm going to inherit in the future that I don't experience now? Yes. Am I fully in the kingdom of God right now? Well, yes and no. Well, that's confusing. Well, that's why the apostles were confused. It is confusing. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So there is a future component to the kingdom. And that has to do really with all those very specific things regarding Jesus reigning as king on earth. He will reign as king on earth. It will be a monarchy. It will literally be on earth. It will be in Jerusalem. Guess what? Nobody's going to vote for him. Who are you voting for? Nobody's voting for him. God elected him. It will be on earth. Jerusalem will be the headquarters. Uh, all believers of all ages will be there. The church will be there. Redeemed Israel of the Old Testament will be there. We'll be reigning along with him. It's going to be glorious. It's going to be for a thousand years because that's what Revelation tells us. But that is yet to come. It is yet future. If you're a Christian today, you will be there reigning on the earth in a resurrected perfect body with no sin. Imagine that. Beyond imagination. How glorious. On, a, on an earth that is so beautified, the curse has been removed, Isaiah tells us. Can't even imagine. But that is yet to come. That's a component of the kingdom yet to come. So there's a physical component to it, uh, and that's, that primarily comes from the Old Testament. So proof of resurrection and this ongoing teaching, very important in preparing them, the apostles, for takeoff. Let's go to number two, the promise. Uh, part of the preparation for takeoff had to do with the promise. What was the promise? And gathering them together. And the Greek word there is eating salt. Uh, and eating together or having a meal together. So it was a time of intimacy together. where They could spend a lot of time together and talk. But it was deliberate. It was a strategic meeting. Gathering the apostles together, he commanded them. Command is not, not, not to leave Jerusalem. Stay in Jerusalem. And you, have a you need to wait. You need to be patient. You've been patient for 40 days. You've got to be patient for 10 more days. Wait. Well, what are we waiting for, Jesus? Well, we're waiting for the promise. What is the promise? The coming Holy Spirit. And Jesus tells them, um, wait there in Jerusalem, but wait for what the Father had promised. Which, Jesus said, you heard of from me. Where John baptized, John the Baptist baptized with water, literally. But you shall be baptized, smothered, covered in with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. It would turn out to be ten days from now, uh, the day of Pentecost. So wait for the promise. Wait for the promise. Wait for the promise. So for 40 days, actually for three plus years, the apostles were prepared. Uh, for 40 days, they were prepared. And so really, we're suited now to do ministry and represent Jesus Christ 
from a human point of view, but they were about to engage in supernatural work. They couldn't do it in their own strength. They can't do the work that God's told them to do without the component of the leading and the power of the Holy Spirit, and that is the promise. And Jesus reminds them, you know, I promised about this Holy Spirit. I just want to read the scripture from the Gospel of John just to remind you. Uh, when, so when, when did Jesus tell them about this coming Holy Spirit? Well, he did several times, and there are several in the Gospel of John. So about, I don't know, far halfway through Jesus' three-year ministry. In John chapter 7, uh, verse 39, Jesus said this to his apostles. Starting at verse 7, actually. Uh, or we'll go to verse 38. The one who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being, from the inside, internally, not external, shall flow rivers of living water. But it wasn't literal water, it was metaphorical. What in the world is he talking about? Verse 39 is the explanation. But this promise, Jesus spoke of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in Jesus were to receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given. That is an amazing statement. The Holy Spirit is going to be given in a new way, a fuller way, a certain way, that the Holy Spirit of God has never been given to anybody in the history of the earth. Yes, the Holy Spirit was present in the Old Testament. Yes, the Holy Spirit was with God's people in the Old Testament, but he wasn't with all of God's people in the way he's going to be. Because it says right here, he's going to give the Holy Spirit. This is a promise. Whom those who believed in him, the only ones that are going to get this Holy Spirit are those who believe in Christ and the gospel, who are Christians, who are saved, believed in him. They were to receive, for the Spirit of God was not given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. So this Holy Spirit of God is not going to be poured out until Jesus dies, rises again, ascends into heaven. That is the promise. The Holy Spirit is coming. So that's the promise. John said, then John, so now we go to the end of his ministry just before his death. And he's got this time, uh, chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, where he is uh, the last night before his death. He has this intimate time with the 11 apostles, and he has that long discourse. And in there, he gives several promises because he says, oh, by the way, guys, I'm about to die, but I'm going to go back to heaven. And they freaked out. They to utter, total panic. So he says, don't be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Don't be troubled. And then he has to keep encouraging them. He reminds them several times, yes, I am leaving. It's imperative that I leave. I need to leave. I won't leave you as orphans. I'm going to send somebody in my place, and that is the Spirit of God himself, who won't just be with you. He will be in you. He will comfort you. That is the promise. So in John 14, 16, he says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another of the same kind, another helper, another advocate in my place, that he may be with you. Get this, forever. Isn't that awesome? Forever. They didn't quite understand that, even though he said it. And so he says it again, um, verse 26. But the, the, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send, there it is, the promise of the Father. It's a, the promise of the Father and Jesus. We both said it. The Holy Spirit, the helper, the advocate, the comforter, the counselor, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you, the apostles, all things so that you could write it down and put it in the Bible and bring to your remembrance as the apostles all that I said to you, guaranteeing inerrancy of Scripture, by the way. Then in chapter 16, verse 7, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage. I've got to go. It's to your advantage that I go and go back into heaven. For if I do not go away, then the Helper, the Holy Spirit, He can't come to you. But if I do go, I'll send Him to you. I promise. 
I promise. I promise. So he reminds them of that promise. And gathering them together, he commanded them, here, stay in Jerusalem. Wait, wait, wait. Wait for what? Well, for the promise that me and the Father that we gave you. And it's the baptism by the Holy Spirit. And that will happen first with the apostles. And then every person after the apostles, whoever believes in the gospel and gets saved, that same promise is fulfilled, that the Holy Spirit comes to that Christian. So the moment, if you're a Christian today, the moment you believe, you got saved. And the reality is the Holy Spirit of God came and started living in you, literally, absolutely amazing. Living in you. That's why uh, Colossians 1 says that Christ lives in you. Well, how can Jesus live in me? Through the presence of his Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit literally lives in you. According to Romans 8, if you're a Christian, you have the Spirit of God living in you. According to Romans 8, if you don't have the Spirit living in you, you are not a Christian, regardless of what you think. And the Holy Spirit will never leave you nor forsake you. He is there. He's resident in you. You take him with you wherever you go at all times. That is the promise to the Christian. And the Holy Spirit will be in every Christian until they die and go to heaven or till Jesus returns. That is the promise. And the apostles needed to be reminded of that. They needed to hear that. And then now, one step further, they're almost fully prepared for takeoff. And that's number three. Jesus now gives the plan. Here's the plan. You've had your training. You've had encouragement through proofs. I'm reminding you of this awesome promise. And now here is the plan to implement until I return again. And this plan is also for the church today. It doesn't change. It's the plan to fulfill the mission. And so, verse 6, the plan, what is the plan? Well, it's starting from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. That's the plan. You shall be my witnesses. And so, so we're supposed to be witnesses. What's the mission of the church? Well, one of the basic missions of the church is we're supposed to be witnesses for Jesus. He says you're witnesses. The apostles were witnesses. Every Christian was to be a witness. It's not you become a witness or you try to be a witness. You are a witness. It's your identity. That's what he says. You are witnesses. The word martyr. You're a martyr. It didn't originally mean death. It just meant someone who tells the truth based on eyewitness. So verse 6, and so when they had come together, they were asking him. So here they are. They're coming together. Uh, they've spent 40 days with him. They've seen amazing things. Man, they're probably kind of very encouraged and upbeat and very positive. And knowing Peter, pretty optimistic. We have seen some amazing things. This is awesome. Oh, yeah, that promise. Oh, man, I cannot wait till that Holy Spirit comes. Whatever that means. Bring it on, Jesus. Okay, okay, Peter. And you guys, you can't do this in your own strength. True of us as well. He'd been talking about the kingdom of God for 40 days. And so verse 6 says, okay, uh, thanks for telling us all that stuff, Jesus. And so when they came together, they were asking him, continuously asking like little kids. It wasn't just one question. Thomas, you have a question? No, it was boom, boom, fire away. And they just keep pestering him. Well, what about this? Well, what about the kingdom? Well, what about the kingdom? Well, what about the kingdom? Well, what about what about all those promises? What about the 732 promises about the kingdom in the Old Testament? You said you would fulfill all of them, Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount. You told us that. And so when they had come together, they were asking Jesus, saying, Lord. And at this time, Lord Kurios had taken on a technical meaning. God. Jesus, you are Lord. You are deity. You are with the Father. We bow the knee to you. We serve you. You are our judge. 
Lord, is it at this time? See, there's the timing factor. Is it now? Is it at this time today that you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? And that's such a loaded question. In terms of what is implied and what they were asking. There's a zillion things they were asking. Jesus, is it today, right now, at this meal, that you are going to assume the literal throne of David as king and overthrow Herod and overthrow Rome so that we can be a sovereign power in fulfillment of our Old Testament scriptures? That's what they were asking. And that we get to reign with you, as Daniel 2 and 12 say. Is it now? We'll crush all of our enemies. You will reign supreme. We'll fulfill Psalm 2. All these earthly problems. You were going to take the entire land that God promised to Abraham in Genesis 15. From the Euphrates River almost all the way over to the Nile River. That has never been possessed by the people of Israel in the history of the earth since the promise was given. And it was a literal promise by God. It's now the time we take all of this land. This is all what they're thinking. Because this is all Old Testament truth. And notice, it's in, in their mind, it's all Israel, Israel, Israel. Judah, Judah. They're not thinking Gentiles. At this point, some of them still think Gentiles are dirty. Gentiles are unclean, including the head apostle, Peter. Because all the Old Testament promises about the kingdom, for the most part, were to Israel and the Jews. So, Jesus, is it now? Is it now? And then Jesus says, verse 7, he said to them, Well, it is not for you to know times or epics. Chronos, times, chronology, the order of events. It's really not your business to know the order of events of world history. And we do, there is an order of events. There was creation. There was fall. There was the flood. There was Babel. There was Abraham. There was the nation of Israel. There was the preparation of silence, coming of the Messiah. There is his birth, his upbringing, his teaching, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. His building the church, reaching the end of the world, the rapture, the tribulation, the coming again, the millennium, eternity, new heavens, new earth. That is chronology. That is the time. I don't have to reveal to you all the details. That is in the Father's hands. History is His story, as they say. So it's not for you to know the, the sequence or the chronology or the epics, kairos. The, the actual specific events, one by one, and all of the gory details that go with You don't need to know that. So he does answer their question, but he answers it in a way that they're not expecting, probably in a way that they weren't satisfied with uh, initially. It's not for you to know the times and the epics, which the Father has fixed. One of those that could fit under this rubric or this umbrella would be the timing of the second coming. Because Jesus said in, in Matthew that the Son of God didn't even know the day or the hour. Jesus, in His incarnation at that moment, did not literally know when the second coming was before His death. He didn't know. So that would be, here, I, I didn't even know. I didn't know. Uh, I didn't need to know at that time. Does Jesus know now? Absolutely. He's back in glory with the Father that He had before the foundation of the world, according to John 17. They don't need to know. They just need to trust. 
here's what you do need to know. You don't need to usurp the Father's authority, but I will give you authority to do the job you need to do. And that's verse 8. By the way, in verse 7, even though he says it's not for you to know, he doesn't say, yeah, you know all that stuff that was literal in the Old Testament about the Messiah sitting on David's throne in Jerusalem and possessing the land from over there, uh, the Tigris down to the Nile River and all that stuff and uh, removal of the curse. That, you know what, that was all figurative. It, that ain't going to happen. He doesn't say that because it's not figurative. It's really going to happen. It hasn't happened. It's going to happen in the future. It's really going to happen. And there are people like me who believe that Revelation 21 through 6 is literal. And it says that time span of the, the, the kingdom on earth is going to be a thousand years long, which means in Latin millennium. That's where we get the word millennium. That's Latin for a thousand years. And then the Greek word is related to the word chili, chiliest, a thousand. So I'm a chiliest. What does that mean? I believe that the future kingdom on earth is going to be literally 1,000 years because six times in Revelation 21 through 6, it says 1,000 years. So there is going to be that kingdom. It's going to be fulfilled. It's on earth. I am a chiliest. So if anybody ever comes up and asks you and they're sneering, are you a chiliest? Uh, yeah, well, at least my pastor is. Um, so he goes on, and here's the authority. Here's what you need to be about. Verse 8, but you shall receive power. Boy, that's, that's exciting. You shall receive power, and power, yes, is the word dunamis, dunamis, where we get the, literally the English word dynamite. And there's a correlation between our English word and that power. Supernatural power, amazing power. You're going to receive it. In other words, you don't have the power you need right now, but you will have the power. And the power comes from the Holy Spirit. So you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit promise has come upon you. And then you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. There it is. That is amazing. They're going to be endued with supernatural power that is actually the Spirit of God himself. And every Christian who uh, is born again, they have the Spirit of God living in them. And, you know, we have the same power resident in us that the apostles did. They expressed it in a different way. They had different gifts. They had the gift of apostleship and prophecy and these things. But it's the same indwelling Holy Spirit that lives in us. The same Spirit that created the world out of nothing. The same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead. The same Spirit that lived inside the apostles. Also is the same Spirit that lives in all of us. To comfort us. To teach us. To lead us. To convict us. And also to empower us for great things. For ministry. And not just for ministry. But also for just dealing with life. Because we need power day to day. In this life. We need supernatural power we need god's help in his power god give me more power god give me more actually the way we should pray is father you have given me the holy spirit of god to live inside of me that is supernatural divine awesome power no greater power in the universe uh, exists outside your holy spirit and he lives in me thank you father and god i need to the resource of your power in your spirit that lives in me to help me with this financial problem I have or relationship problem I have in my family or this problem that I have at work or this problem I have with a besetting sin that I have or a problem that I have with uh, my weight or I can't stop eating or God, my lack of self-control. The power is in the Holy Spirit that lives in us. It's the same power. You will receive power from the Holy Spirit when He comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses. That's your main job. That is your main focus. Uh, you're not to 
spearhead a soup kitchen primarily. You are to be my witnesses. And this word, by the way, refers to a verbal witness, a vocal witness. And that's why Christianity for 2,000 years has always been a verbal religion, a vocal religion, and also written down in words. The gospel is to be preached, proclaimed, spoken, debated, talked to, impressed upon with conviction on people. You've got to open your mouth to be a witness for Christ. It's not just live for Jesus. It is live and speak for Jesus. And that's 1 Peter 3.15. How, how, how would we be effective witnesses? And that is that at any time, regardless of who we're talking about, we need to be willing to speak up for Jesus and be a witness. Yet with, so that's, you've got to speak up. That's what 1 Peter 3.15 says. But it says with gentleness and roughness, that's how we do it. And then Titus 2, same thing. Titus 2's emphasis is on how we live as a witness. So they have to go together. It's how we speak, what we speak, the content, and also how we live. They have to go together. You can't have living for Jesus without speaking because it needs to be interpreted by divine truth. Good people, people who are religious, moral people can live a life that looks like it's good and decent because they're made in God's image. There is common grace. It has to be interpreted with preaching, the Word of God, the Gospel, so that people are not confused and they know for sure exactly where the the power is coming from. And that is the Spirit of God. You need to be my witnesses, both vocal and how you live. And here's the strategy. So we got, what's our mission? To be witnesses for Jesus, to continue the work that He began to do and teach. It was passed on the baton of the apostles, and they've been passing that baton on all throughout the ages. And now we have the baton, so we have to continue the work of Jesus, which is what? Talking about what Jesus taught, which is what? Being witnesses for him. Witnessing what? The gospel of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God. That's a summary of all that Jesus taught, the gospel of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. And we do it as faithful witnesses. And there's even a strategy of how the church was to do it. And even individually, this applies. And that is, okay, apostles, I want you to start in Jerusalem. Start where you are. Start in your own backyard. Start with your family, with your relatives, your co-workers, your neighbors, your associates, your community of people who don't know Jesus. And then the apostles are successfully going to do that. They turn Jerusalem upside down. The gospel went everywhere. Then they're chased out of town. They go to the next concentric circle of Samaria. The gospel goes there. And then they go to the remotest parts of the earth. As a matter of fact, this verse right here is the outline of the book of Acts. The gospel starts in Jerusalem, and in Acts 28, it has reached the uttermost part of the then-known world, the hub of all power, the Roman Empire. And so we're going to see that flow as the Spirit of God continues to fulfill and accomplish the mission of Jesus through His obedient people, taking the gospel witness from Jerusalem to the end of the earth. And let me close with this scripture to encourage you. Now that we know our mission, we can't do it in our own strength. Jesus said, you, you have not because you ask not. Next time you have a problem, you think about how I solve this problem. Think about, okay, God, thank you for the Holy Spirit that lives in me. Thank you for the power through the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 3 is where I'm going. And God, now give me wisdom of how I can appropriate the Spirit of God who lives in me that gives me that resident power to deal with this problem in my life whether it's contentment, denying a sin temptation, it doesn't matter. 
And I'm going to close with this just unbelievable promise uh, from the Apostle Paul in reminder, Ephesians chapter 3. He says, verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that God would grant you, Christian, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power, there it is, through the Holy Spirit that lives in you, that is in the inner man. So that, in order that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend and understand with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. And now to Him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power in heaven? No. According to the power that works within us. Absolutely mind-boggling. It's so mind-boggling, that's why Paul says, i got to pray that you understand this. Because so many Christians don't. Oh, I can't do this, and I can't do this, and blah. No, well, actually we can, legitimately through the power of the Spirit of God in accordance with His will. So let's go to the Father now and and pray that he would enlighten our understanding with respect to these great truths. Father, we do thank you for this morning. Uh, we thank you for the privilege to worship you. Also to search your word together. Thank you for the model of the Lord Jesus who so patiently took the time to prepare his apostles even when they were short-sighted and self-centered and sinful. and That's who you are, God. You are patient. You are merciful. You're gracious even with us the same. Thank you for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for every person in this room that you have saved through the gospel and the Spirit lives in them. Show them through your Holy Spirit. Enlighten them. Help them understand how the Spirit of God living in them can help them with every problem that they have in life, but also how the Holy Spirit of God prepares us and empowers us for very significant ministry. We cannot do it in our own strength. And as a result, we need to give you the glory for it because it all comes from you. Thank you for the work of our blessed Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you reign on high as our high priest. We love you. We give you all the praise, all the glory, and we pray it all in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.